tonight's message, if you're tuning in, is called this, Responding to Accusation. Responding to Accusation. I'm used to people talking, um, so forgive me if I seem a little awkward, but it's going to be good. Um, I hope you're all doing well. I hope your families are doing well. Um, But I'm going to talk about responding to accusation tonight. Last week, we started in Acts chapter 6, and we saw that the enemy was trying to come against the church with a new strategy, division from within. Up to this point in Acts, the enemy was trying to come against the church that was building in the name of Jesus with the first apostles in the upper room. We saw a lot of outward-focused things, but in last week's chapter, we saw that there was a division trying to come from within. Basically, what it came down to is there was Greeks and there were Hebrews. Um, Basically, they were traditionalists and contemporaries, and they were having a dispute about um, one not getting food for the widows and orphans. They were One was getting more than the other. It was a legitimate concern, but not necessarily an intentional concern. And I find that funny because in coming out of this teaching about division, I believe that that's one of the biggest things that we can face right now as a church. Because the fact of the matter is, we've got a lot of houses of worship in the area. Some are meeting, some are not. Um, some have decided that we're going to do an online experience like we are. Some have decided they're going to meet together. And one of the biggest things that can cause division in the church from within the church is for one group to think they're more holier than the other or for one house to think they're doing better than the other or for one house to think they're more bold in their faith than the other. But this does not come down to uh, what each other believes. We need to focus and unify in the fact that no matter how we're doing it, we are unified in lifting up the name of Jesus and we're not stopping. The government has not told us to stop preaching. We are just preaching and worshiping together in a different platform, preparing for what could be. But we're believing this is going to be quick, and we're not going to let that divide us. Amen? There was just a dispute about handling food. The apostles handled it. They didn't turn away from a blind eye to the problem. They kept focus on their role. The apostles kept focus on their role in prayer and teaching while handling the issue at hand. And I think that's necessary for this time, that while handling the issue, while the government is taking proper steps in doing what they're doing, and while the church is taking steps in what they're doing in our city and so forth, we have have got to make sure we do one thing, and that is keep our eyes focused on him. And in this time, especially in this time, we need to really understand how to respond to accusation because there will be accusations. There's going to be accusations against the church. There's going to be accusations against leadership. There's going to be accusations toward government. There's going to be accusations to how you're handling yourself. The apostles in the midst of a crisis, picked seven men to handle food distribution. And one of these men was named Stephen. And we pick up tonight where Stephen is about to be accused of things that are false. I don't know about you, but I've experienced times in my life where I've had people accuse me of false things. I'm sure you've gone through it too. And sometimes we handle that great, sometimes we don't. Stephen is about to handle some pretty tough accusation, and we're going to see exactly how he does that. So I want to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. For those of you that are watching uh, or joining us for the first time, we're reading mainly from the New Living Translation. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says this, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. 
One thing I want to point out before we go any further into this text is that this man who was picked to handle a food distribution did not let food distribution become his identity. He served in the ministry of distributing food to both widows and orphans between the Greeks and the Hebrew believers. But when it came time for God to release signs and miracles through God's grace and power, Stephen was ready. And I believe that a church on fire does not use what we do to replace when we're ready for him to do what he wants to do. Because what's happened in the church is we've created this culture where if you are a kids minister or a, uh, a, a homeless minister or you're a minister to the, the, to the, to the needy, you're a, you're a minister to the elderly, you're a minister to this, minister to that, worship pastor, kids pastor, whatever you want to call it, we tend to stay in our lanes of ministry. Stephen had a lane of ministry, but he also was not going to let that particular lane of ministry prohibit him from letting God, as it says, perform amazing miracles and signs among the the people. We have to remember that we are a vessel for God and we are supposed to allow him to do what he wants us to do. We've got to allow him to do it. Someone look at someone in your house tonight and say, allow him to do it. Allow him to do it. Instead of letting your ministry box you in. Remember, ministry is what you serve in and every single person is in a ministry. Maybe it's in a church. Maybe it's in a house of worship where you're in a worship ministry or a kids ministry or an outreach ministry. But maybe you work at Gulfstream. Maybe you work at Walmart. Maybe you serve in the line at Publix or Kroger. Maybe you're a super holy person and you serve at Chick-fil-A. Either way, we all have a ministry where we're serving something. Right now, the ministry looks a little different. You can't go into certain places and eat. You got to go by curbside and takeout. By the way, shout out to all the waiters and waitresses. Tip them well. Can someone say amen to that? But we have got to get to this place where we stop defining ministry as just something that is churchy. Ministry is what you are called to do in this season. And in what you're called to do, you cannot let that calling box you in. Because there's going to be times where God calls you to go outside of the box. Stephen was in charge, one of the seven, of distributing the food. But he's about to go outside the box. So in verse 9, it says this. But one day... Some men from the synagogue of free slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. I want us to notice something here. The only thing we're told about Stephen is this. He was a man full of God's grace and power. Now, we know in the verses prior that we read last week that he had to meet two characteristics to be one of the seven handling the food ministry. The characteristics was that he was walking in the power of God and he had wisdom. So we see a man that is described by just a few things. He was walking, submitted to the power of God. He had wisdom and he was full of God's grace. And the reason no one could stand against him in this dispute it's because it was one thing. He was wise and he put his wisdom under the Holy Spirit. When you surrender to God, there is no, you, there is no match to any opponent, opponent or disagreement. 
A lot of times accusations come against us and, and circumstances come against us in our lives. And oftentimes we try to resort to ourselves and what we do and what we know. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it's a skill. Maybe it's a thing that you're good at. Oftentimes we try to kind of go back into that and be comfortable in what we know. But the reason why these men could not stand against Stephen and win an argument or, or, or be on top in the accusation was because Stephen was not relying on his wisdom. He was relying on placing his wisdom at the feet of being surrendered to God. And I think that that's a big miss in the church and a big miss in us as believers. When I say church, I don't mean relentless. I mean the body of Christ. I mean a big miss in the church is that we tend to try to put more uh, reliance in ourselves rather than relying on submitting everything we have to the Holy Spirit. Whether it's your wisdom, your skill, your ability to sing, your ability to play, your ability to teach, your ability to organize. The biggest strength you can have is when we submit that to the Holy Spirit because there's going to come a day if you are walking as a child of God that accusers will come your way. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's a when. When the accusers come, will you be ready? Because Stephen was surrendered. No one could top his wisdom. Because Stephen wasn't relying on his wisdom. He was relying on placing his wisdom at the feet of God. We have got to stop trying to win battles that we were never designed to win alone. I put forth to you, if you read the scripture tonight, if Stephen tried to argue his way out of this, there would have been no glory to God. But Stephen was a man that knew everything I've got has got to be submitted to him. We've got to surrender it all to the Spirit of God. Because they weren't winning, because they could not get a one-up on Stephen, we see in verse 11 what's about to happen. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we'd heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law, so they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Notice what happens as a result of not winning a debate with Stephen. They couldn't do anything about what these Jesus followers were doing. So then they started persuading some men by lying about what Stephen was saying. They spread lies to win a popular opinion to take out what offended their corruption. Stephen was simply speaking on behalf of God. He was full of wisdom. He was submitted to the Holy Spirit. And when they couldn't win an argument, they said, we're not going to try to win the argument. We are not going to try to prove Stephen wrong. We're just going to win public opinion by spreading slander. We're going to spread lies to win popular opinion. The fact of the matter is that popular opinion can easily be shaped. We see it in the scripture many times. The, the same crowds that praised Jesus as a healer crucified him. And the same crowds that came rushing to the apostles is the same crowd that was now betraying Stephen. And the church has got to become a place where we do not let popular opinion shape the vision or focus 
of where God wants to take the church and how God wants to shape the church. The only thing that should shape us is a relationship with a loving father who made a way for us through the sacrifice of his son and the filling of his spirit. Because when people feel threatened or when people feel like they're losing, the easiest thing to do is one word, gossip. And that is one of the biggest things within the church. We love to talk about each other. And we do it in many ways. We spread lies about what this church believes or what that church believes or what this person said or what that person said, usually because we're not getting our way, so we try to win the popular opinion of whether it be the city or whether it be the people within the house. We try to get people on our side because we're trying to accuse someone to get our way. Proverbs talks about gossip, talking about things that are false. In Proverbs 16, 28, it says, a troublemaker plants seeds of strife and gossip separates the best of friends. The popular opinion, the gossip, it's a powerful, powerful weapon. In Proverbs 11, 9, it says this, with their words, the godless destroy their friends, but knowledge will rescue the righteous. The only way these accusers were getting on top in a worldly sense where they were trying to win popular opinion by spreading lies of what Stephen was saying. And what's happening to Stephen is, the, is here's what's happening from others who aren't winning a debate with Stephen. The church is not as powerful as it once was because more gossip happens within the walls than outside the walls. At this time with Stephen, the church is unified and thousands are being added daily because of the impact they're having. And all of a sudden, what comes against this, this growth and this power is they're trying to win the popular opinion. And I'm a firm believer the reason churches aren't growing and the reason why the church is not rising above is because when people look at the church, all they see is division, 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 and division because when we should be unified in power, what people on the outside of the wall see is a church that splits, that can't agree on anything, and why would anyone want to worship a God with churches representing that all we do is divide, 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 and the popular opinion of the church is we're weak, and when we're without, we can't get unified. We don't what we no, we don't know what we want, and we're all trying to get our own way. And we have got to get to a place as a church on fire where we do not want our own way. We're not trying to promote ourselves. The only thing we're trying to promote is the name of Jesus, who made us right to have the relationship with God, our loving Father. But popular opinion is powerful. If we're going to be on church on fire, we've got to be unified. We've got to be submitted to the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the biggest way and key to get unified is learning how to respond when accusers come. Because one thing the church has done terrible on is when we're accused of something, instead of responding in love, we respond the opposite way. We accuse back. We respond with evil things. Evil may not be something as tremendous as murder or physical harm, but an evil, I believe, is even gossip. An evil of the church could even be talking bad about another house. And I know many people are watching, and this could be more than just relentless, and I'm putting before you, relentless is not a house that is trying to be better than another church. We are called to something different, and we want to partner and uplift and know that we are all in this together. Amen?
So let's look at these accusations again in Acts chapter 6, verse 13. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. Now remember who Stephen is. He's full of wisdom. He's submitted to the Holy Spirit. They're not winning an argument, so they're accusing him of basically coming against God. He's against the temple. He's against the law of Moses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Basically, this. Stephen's saying Jesus is greater, and they twisted it and said this dude is saying that Jesus abolished the law and is against the holy temple. The truth is that Jesus fulfilled the law. You no longer have to keep the law to be saved. However, because I am making you right with the Father, the law is no longer about your salvation. The law is about being conformed into the image of God so that those on the outside of the church can see God in you and pull them in instead of seeing a church so divided. He fulfilled the law, and he didn't say, let's abolish the temple. He said, I'm making you the temple, so now the temple is merely a place to gather with what you already have. Is this making sense? So the next verse, at verse 15 in Acts chapter 6, it says this. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Funny. They were accusing Stephen of talking against Moses. And in the same moment, his face started to shine, just like Moses when he had to cover his own up. Stephen had a countenance of perfect peace, confidence, and trust in God in the midst of an accusation. Because his goal was not to please the crowd. It was to worship God and tell everyone a truth, no matter the consequence. How did he do that? You see, the Lord told Moses to give Aaron a blessing to speak on the children of Israel in Numbers. Jesus adopted us, it says, into his family as his sons and daughters. We are adopted sons and daughters of the living God, which means Israel is no longer limited to a country. See, we always like to pray for Israel, and we should, but we need to redefine Israel. Israel is no longer the limits of a country. Israel is the people of God. When we are adopted into that family, we are Israel. And this is what it says in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, concerning when Moses gave Aaron a blessing to speak. This is the blessing on Israel. This is the blessing on the church. It says in Numbers 6, 24, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was the countenance on Stephen in the midst of trial and adversity. I wonder when accusations come against you, do they see your face shining with a countenance of peace of God? Or do they see defense? Do they see hate? Do they see bitterness? Do they see rage? Or do they see someone that cannot be shaken because their identity is no longer in the accusation, but the identity is in I am a child of God. And I'm going to allow him to shine through me. So going to the next chapter in Acts 7-1, it says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these accusations true? 
Stephen's been accused of saying that the temple isn't important and Jesus abolished the law of Moses. And what we're about to see Stephen give is not a defense. It's simply a proclamation of truth. And so often we try to overcome false accusations with defense instead of using it as an opportunity to share truth and love no matter what the consequences. Because I'm going to go ahead and give you a little spoiler alert for this chapter. This doesn't end good for Stephen. This doesn't end in what we see a breakthrough in a miracle where, where Stephen isn't harmed. This, this ends pretty bad for Stephen. But Stephen is not trying to defend himself. He is so wrapped up in the identity that he is in Christ that all he cares about is these people will hear the truth and the power of my words, that everything I say, the way I respond, the way I'm going to handle this is going to give glory to my Father. When people accuse you of things, when people come against you, and I'm not talking about accusing you of legitimate things. I'm talking about coming against you and your identity as a believer and your identity as a man or woman on fire for God, as your identity as a child of God. When they come against you, because you know what happens. Well, we know who you are. We know what you've been through. We know what you've been going through. We saw how you responded the other day. You're no child of God. Would you believe that? There's no power. Jesus isn't real. I'm talking about those kind of accusations coming against you as the people of God. How will you respond? Because I've seen people do it many ways. I've seen people respond by lifting up the name of Jesus, but I've also seen people respond by putting the accuser down. Because you think your God, who is all-powerful, needs your defense. He doesn't need your defense. He needs you to respond appropriately. So often we try to overcome false accusations with defense because the fact of the matter is we fear consequences more than we fear God. What or who do you fear more, God or the consequence? And when I say fear, I mean fear is in respect for one another or, or one or the other, a respect that causes your life to respond in one way or another way. As a child of God, or as someone who doesn't look like the Father. And the way Stephen responds is not defense, but he responds with love and truth. So what we're about to see in Acts chapter 7 is 60 verses of what Stephen said in response to their accusations that this Jesus and these apostles don't care about the law of Moses and don't care about the temple. So verse 2, this was Stephen's reply. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. God told him, leave your native land and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran until his father died. And then God brought him here to the land where you now live. But God gave him no inheritance here. Not even one square foot of land. God did promise, however, that eventually the whole land would belong to Abraham and his descendants, even though he had no children yet. Stephen says, all of you who are coming against me, you recognize Abraham. You recognize that he was a man who loved God. And let's point out what we just read in verse 5. Abraham did not need to get to a temple to get revelation and truth. 
He didn't even need to see the promised land. His descendants would. Stephen is explaining, God loves you enough and cares enough to meet you where you are at with the goal of leading you to a new place and total trust in him. Abraham didn't need to get to a temple. Abraham did not need to prove himself. Abraham was simply living a life unto God, and in a moment, Abraham got a revelation. And the new place for Abraham was, wasn't even the land because Abraham wasn't going to see the land. It was a relationship on the basis of faith and trust without the evidence of the promise. You see, Stephen's putting this forth to them. No, 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 no. Y'all are looking at me and Jesus and all these people as if we don't care about the temple, as if we don't care about the law. I'm showing you in your own scripture, all these accusers, that even Abraham did not need to get to a physical place to meet God. And we have got something wrong in the church. We're trying to get everyone to come in. We're trying to get everyone to, to come in to, to get convinced and to get saved and to say prayers. And the fact of the matter is, all it's about is trying to build our numbers and build our organization. What we need to be doing is getting back to Acts, become a church on fire, where this is no longer the tool for evangelism. This is the place where we build people up, raise people up, train people up, so that when we go out of the temple, they experience the temple. God says you are now the temple that contains the presence of who he is. So why are we trying to get people to come into a place instead of bringing the place to them? Because it's no longer about the place. People often say, if your God is so real, then why don't you have this or why don't you see that? But you got to remember, sometimes the promise is not about the results. Most of the time, the promise is simply faith for the walk. You see, the accusers are going to come against you. I believe in Jesus. My life has changed. We don't see no life change. You're still poor. You're still pitiful. You're still struggling. You're still this. Jesus must not be too powerful. Don't try to defend that because you will lose. How do you respond to that accusation? If your God is so powerful, why don't we see, we see results? Because our relationship is no longer about results. I even put forth to the churches and the pastors and the leaders who may be watching this tonight. If you didn't see any more results and you're tracking in your numbers, would you still consider your church powerful? Because the power that came out of this was not that they started with hundreds and thousands. It started with a few men and women seeking God. Hmm. In verse 6, it says this. This is okay? I know y'all online, but I, I got to do my thing. God also told him that his descendants would live in a foreign land where they would be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them, God said. And in the end, they will come out and worship me here in this place. God also gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision at that time. So when Abraham became the father of Isaac, he circumcised him on the eighth day. And the practice was continued when Isaac became the father of Jacob and when Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs of the Israelite nation. Stephen says, the sign of covenant came from this and with the promise of a promised land and freedom and triumph all coming from persecution. And we get so scared when persecution comes. 
We think persecution is a sign that we're going in the wrong direction when I put forth to you that maybe persecution is a sign that you're going in the right direction. Because if you're not a threat to the world, why would the enemy come against you? And if you are a believer who is walking in truth, who is studying the word, who is in prayer and has fellowship with the Father, stuff will come against you, but that you should never use the measuring tool of persecution as I should stop or I should go. Because God knows how to take care of his people who will endure trial for his name. Think about the promise as they're talking about Abraham. The people will be slaves for 400 years. And we freak out when things get hard. Maybe the accusation from the enemy is coming into your mind. Well, it's getting too hard. You need to back up. You need to take a pause. You don't need to go to church this weekend. You don't need to worship this weekend. You need to get yourself together. The best way to get yourself together is lose yourself and get in the identity of who you are in Jesus because it's no longer about who you are. Whose judgment do you rely more on, the accusers or God's? The Christian life is not supposed to be easy. And we expect promise when we say a salvation prayer that, oh, when I get saved, it's going to be easy. But when we really read the scripture, we need to realize something. When you get saved, when you become a believer, when you're walking as a child of God, there will be accusers, it will be hard, and you will go through hard times. And when that happens, are you a Stephen who will trust God no matter what you're facing? Or do you compromise and bow to the accusers because your faith is not in God as much as you think it is? It comes down to one question. What are you living for? Are you living for him? Or are you living to please the popular opinion of what they think you are? I see so many families who someone bows away from who they are to appease the family. Or they get in a group of friends and they become who their friends see them as, as instead of standing firm and who God sees them as. What are you living for? I don't read much from Revelation, but I was, I was, as I was studying, there's a few verses in Revelation, Revelation chapter 12 that I want to read. Revelation 12, 9 through 11, it says this. This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. So we're talking in a time where this is where we're at now. Let me just talk about some theology. Satan is not in hell. He doesn't visit the earth when he's done living in the fire. Satan is right here, right now. This is where he's at. He's been thrown down to the earth with all his angels, which what we know as demons. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Make no mistake about it. You are being accused. And they have defeated him by arguing. No. It says they defeated the accuser by the blood of the lamb, and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. 
We go through so much accusation from the enemy, and it happens in your mind. You start thinking you're not good enough. You've sinned too much, so you can't be a true child of God. You can't be an heir to the inheritance of the kingdom. We have all these accusations going through our mind. And right here we're reading this. The way you fight it, when you doubt yourself, when, you're, when you doubt that you're a child of God, when you doubt that you're walking as you should, there's one way to win the argument, to, to win over the accusation is this. By the blood of the Lamb, you're covered in his blood, and by your testimony. That doesn't mean when you get up in church with a microphone and tell people about how bad it once was and how good is it now. Your testimony is the living example that you are dependent and living in Christ Jesus and nothing else. I'm going to get really real. There are people literally panicking right now because of job loss with this whole COVID-19 thing. What am I going to do? The government ain't giving me this. The government ain't giving me that. Why are you depending on the government more than your God who says, even if you have to endure a hard time, he will deliver you? Why are we in this time of crisis, if you will, we're so focused on what's happening in the world, what's happening in the government, what we're going to do next week and this week that we have forgot to lean on the one who will never leave us. What is the accusation right now that a virus is going to win? What is the accusation right now that America is going to be changed forever? Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we need to be praising God that we're being led into captivity because if I read my Bible all the time, every time they're led into captivity, they come out stronger. We did a whole series about David. God led him to hide in a cave before he came back out. Maybe the reason we're having to meet online for the next couple weeks is not because we're trying to stay safe. Maybe God's trying to tell us when you come back out of this, we have got to get some things right. Amen? Hmm. Well, picking back up in Acts 7 verse 9. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph. He's starting a whole nother story. He's gone from Abraham, now he's talking about Joseph. They sold him to be a slave in Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. But a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father Jacob, all his relatives, to come to Egypt, 75 people in all. So Jacob went to Egypt. He died there, as did our ancestors. Their bodies were taken to Shechem, buried the tomb um, in the tomb Abraham had bought for a certain price from uh, Haman's son in Shechem. Here again, no temple was needed for Joseph to be in the presence of God, and he points something out. Joseph was betrayed, and he was rejected. And he's saying, people who are accusing me of coming against all this, you did that to Jesus. He's saying, just like Joseph was betrayed and he was rejected, even though he did nothing wrong, you're doing the same thing to the one that you say is false. And the great thing is Jesus will still provide for the very people that didn't recognize him because he will show you himself 
through his people, through mercy, through love. Responding to accusation. Jesus still loves you even though you reject him. Think about that. He still loves you when you go back on him. He still loves you when you mess up. He still loved Peter when Peter denied him three times. He still loved the apostles when they went running and hiding. Hmm. Accusations usually come because they recognize something about you that isn't normal. Notice Joseph. When his brothers saw him the second time, it says they did not recognize him until Joseph said, Hey, I'm the guy that you threw in that pit and tried to get rid of years ago. I'm your brother. They did not recognize their own brother that they accused and turned against when he was walking in his true calling. I put forth to you that the way we should respond to accusation is that we should live so much under the direction of Jesus no matter what that people will not recognize you and will accuse you of things you aren't guilty of because they don't understand how you can be changed. And the only way that you should respond is not defending, well, I'm a Christian. You don't know. No, no, no. The way to respond is show them the relationship you have with God by giving them a love that you never had to give before. They threw Joseph in a pit they didn't recognize their own brother. And he didn't use it to say, now I get to one-up the people who tried to take me out. He served them and provided them in a time of need. I believe the biggest way to respond to the accusations in our lives as Christians is not to try to, sh is not to, try to prove someone wrong. It's to walk in an identity that they no longer recognize. We come alive in Jesus Christ. We are born again in salvation. You should not look like the previous you. Continuing on in Acts chapter 7 and verse 17. As the time drew near when God will fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. The king exploited our people and oppressed them, forcing parents to abandon their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born again. This is Stephen talking. A beautiful child in God's eyes. His parents cared for him at home for three months. When they had to abandon him, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, raised him as her own son. Moses was taught all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was raised by, uh, and was powerful in both speech and action. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. He saw an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, so Moses came to the man's defense, avenged him, killing the Egyptian. Moses assumed his fellow Israelites would realize that God had sent him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, he visited them again and saw two men of Israel fighting. He tried to be a peacemaker. Men, he said, you are brothers. Why are you fighting each other? But the man, the wrong, pushed Moses aside. Who made you a ruler and judge over us? He asked. Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Well, when Moses heard that, he fled the country and lived as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there his two sons were born. Here again, Stephen is shifting. He's talked about Abraham. He's talked about Joseph. And then he starts talking about Moses. He says, Moses was born and he had favor with God and there was no temple. He said, Moses was wise and powerful in speech and action, just like Jesus. 
Moses came off his throne out of concern for his people just like Jesus. And Moses offered deliverance to Israel on behalf of God and was rejected like Jesus. Stephen says it all. You've rejected Jesus who is just like Moses, but who is greater than Moses. Stephen was not defending the point. He was trying to help them see the truth. When you're accused, what are you more concerned with? With them seeing truth, with a chance of redemption, or defending yourself to get out of a tough situation? I'm not going into a lot of detail in these passages because I'm trying to get you to see what Stephen's doing. He is pushing through and lifting up Jesus in the midst of accusation by saying, the very things you're telling me that I'm throwing away is exactly what you're doing to me. I'm not saying that this stuff is false. Stephen's saying this stuff served a purpose. You're accusing me of not honoring the temple and everything that you believe never happened in a temple. He says, I'm not rejecting the law of Moses. I'm simply saying Jesus fulfilled it. He continues in verse 30. 40 years later in the desert near Mount Sinai, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he went to take a closer look, the voice of the Lord called out to him, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses shook with terror and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groans and have come down to rescue them. Now go, for I'm sending you back to Egypt. So God sent back the same man his people had previously rejected when they demanded, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Through the angel who appeared to him in the burning bush, God sent Moses to be their ruler and savior. What if the very people that are accusing you, you are meant to serve God and be the agent of change in their life? But they don't see Jesus, they just see someone trying to defend themselves. Verse 36, and by means of many wonders and miraculous signs, Moses led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness for 40 years. Stephen's like, oh, you know the Moses that you're saying I'm speaking against? God appeared to him in a bush, not in a temple. And from there, God called and commissioned Moses. Do you not see how I am not against Moses and the Messiah that you crucified was not against Moses. He's saying what I am telling you is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the reason that God called Moses. Again, he's not defending himself. He's speaking the truth. Continuing on in verse 37. Moses himself told the people of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to listen to Moses. They rejected him and wanted to return to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us some gods who can lead us, for we don't know what has become of this Moses who brought us out of Egypt. So they made an idol shaped like a calf, and they sacrificed to it and celebrated over this thing that they had made. You are rejecting Jesus just like they rejected Moses. 
This is what Stephen's, Stephen's telling the people. He says, you're rejecting Jesus. You're making Moses and your temple an idol above the Christ. And I think a lot of times we can get caught up in that. We idolize things over the true identity of Jesus. We're no longer led to go to houses of worship based off where God's leading. It's about what can be best offered to us. We choose churches off of great kids' ministries. And the fact of the matter is, you can have a great kids' ministry and be a horrible church because while the kids are growing, the parents are still drinking milk. And all they can do is say, I'm saved, but they don't know how to lead anyone in prayer. They don't know how to command out evil spirits. They don't know how to walk into authority. Why is it that the church has become complacent with great programs and no one knows their identity? Because just like these accusers, people care about two things. The temple and am I saved? And for some reason, when we come to church, we all are Christians. But when we leave the house, because we're not in the temple, which we idolize, we look totally different. Stephen's saying, I am the temple. And the reason I'm the temple is because Jesus made me right to carry the Spirit of God. And he says, you don't see it and you won't accept it because you idolize your man-made thing. And even right now, as we're meeting homes, I can guarantee you some of us are thinking, I know what I have made my temple. I know that I care more about this than my identity in Christ. As long as I get my Sunday mornings or Saturday nights in, I'm good. Stephen's saying it's not about that. It is about a new identity and who I am in Jesus. If I may get really real, as opposed to fake real, deciding to go online was one of the toughest things this week. Because it's truthfully, if I can just be transparent, Relentless has a different vision. It's not to go online and have live stream. But we're doing it because of what's going on with COVID-19. Our vision is to have smaller houses where people come and we worship together. It was a difficult decision for me, but I'm making this decision based off of where we're at in our growth as a church. And I'm declaring this right now, and you can take this as a prophetic word or just a, um, uh, a declaration, or you can take it as a challenge. But I say we are going to grow so strong that one day when a virus comes against us again, no one will even think about let's not meet together. But the truth is, we're not there yet. Let's be okay with that, because the accuser is going to come, even with what I just said. Oh, the pastor doesn't think we have faith because we don't want to stay home. It's not what I'm saying. We are not unified enough where a virus cannot live among us. And that may be a tough word for those of you watching. But for those that come to Relentless, you know me, I'm not going to dance around it. We have got to be so strong and unified in our identity with Jesus that when something tries to rear its head to accuse us of being weaker than we really are, we walk boldly forward. 
If we're going to be in isolation this week, if we're going to have to stay in homes and works are going to shut down, let's not take the time to panic over how much water we have in the fridge or how much, you know, your favorite food or desserts in the pantry. Let's take the time to really dive into our faith and become unified in our identity with Christ because we've all got some things to die to. Hmm. I hope this is okay. In verses 42 through 43, it says this. Then God turned away from them and abandoned them to serve the stars of heavens as their gods. In the book of the prophets, it's written, Was it to me you were bringing sacrifices and offerings during these 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No, you carried your pagan gods to shrine of Molech, the star of your god, Rephon, and the images you made to worship them. So I will send you into exile as far as Babylon. They rejected God, and the result was exiled. And I promise you that if you reject Jesus, I wonder what you're giving up. When opposition comes, you don't know what you may be giving up when you surrender rather than stand. I believe we lost some momentum in this time, just being straight with you. But I say if we keep our eyes on God and not worry about what people accuse, of, accuse us of, oh, these Christians think, you know, they, they bold, but look at them now. No, no, no. Let's respond to the accusation with one thing. We know who we are in Christ, and we're walking forward boldly. We are going to become the people that is a church on fire where we know how to cast out sickness, where we know how to heal, where we know how to listen to God when we need to pray for someone, when we need to take action, when we need to back up, when we need to pass people by, when we need to stop. But we are not there yet. All church has become in 2020 is this. Who has the best band? Who has the best lights? Who has the best building? Who has the best programs? And Jesus is like, oh, so you care more about the temple than me. Am I, am I talking to anybody? You care more about your temple than his. I got to keep my home safe. What about the home that is the dwelling place of the Lord? Because your heart's divided. Your heart's full of filth. Why can't we take care of that first? Do you trust him in this time? Do you believe in him in all of his ways in this time? Continuing on, we're getting to the end. In verse 44, it says, Our ancestor carried the tabernacle with them through the wilderness. It was constructed according to the plan God had shown to Moses. Years later, when Joshua led our ancestors in battle against the nations that God drove us out of this land, the tabernacle was taken with them into their new territory, and it stayed there until the time of King David. David found favor with God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who actually built it. Look at this, even right now, we, and if you were with us any amount of time, we did like 45 weeks of David. Even God was not concerned about it then. He, <laughs> however, verse 48, however, the Most High doesn't live in temples made by human hands. 
As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hands make both the heavens and the earth? We tend to try and confine God to a place, and that is exactly what the accusers were coming against. They're saying, Stephen, you don't care about the temple. You don't care about the place. And Stephen's like, God does not dwell in that place anymore. He's made us right, and he dwells in us and the temple is simply a place to gather your your church whether it's relentless or any other house of worship in savannah is simply a place for the temples to come together and meet and yet for some reason in america the only time god gets glory is in a place when you come to a building which truthfully just means one thing we don't really believe much unless we're assembling together. I hear so many times people say, well, I got to get to church so I can get healed or I got to get to church so I, can get a, get, so I can get a touch from God. Do you realizing that you are just like the people accusing Stephen? You believe there's more power in the temple than there is inside of you? The Bible is clear that when two or more gathered, I am there. And if the Holy Spirit's in me, I've got at least two or four right now because it's a Trinity three and one and I'm Kyle. So even when I'm alone, I'm not alone. Do we not get the gravity of that? Joshua 1, 9 says this. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He's not confined. God is with us. So when Stephen puts forth all this evidence for these past 50 verses, talking about Abraham and Moses and Joseph and all these things, he addresses the accusers. Verse 51 in Acts chapter 7. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors did not persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's laws even though you received it from the head, hands of the angels. And the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fist at him in rage. After putting this case forth, Stephen told him like it was, because he wasn't going to be intimidated. Because remember what they prayed for up until this point in Acts chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6? Boldness, boldness boldness and he was filled with such boldness that he was not going to let any threat come against him standing bold for Jesus which begs a question for us tonight when the enemy comes against you where do you stand when the accusations in your head start to come against who you are oh you're not good enough you haven't proved yourself where do you stand Oh, you haven't been to church in a long time. You haven't read your Bible. God doesn't love you. Where do you stand? Oh, you're staying home tonight because you're not assembling at church. Where do you stand? Where do you stand when you start getting those accusatory thoughts? 
Where are you going to stand when your neighbors call you a fake Christian because you don't want to get outside the walls? Where do you stand? You want to know how Stephen did it? Look what happens in verse 55. Got five more verses. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. You want to know how Stephen dealt with the accusations? He wasn't fixated on the, op on the opposition. He wasn't moved by the threat of what was about to come. His eyes were fixed on Jesus. When the accuser comes against you and your faith and your beliefs, especially in a time like this, are your eyes fixed on the accusers? On the situation? On the lack? Or are you fixed on him? Matthew 10, 32 says, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly here on earth, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. If we would just fix our eyes on him, we, we would begin to acknowledge him in everything we do. And the fact of the matter is, if you have forgotten to acknowledge him in this time, it's an indicator of where your eyes are truly fixed. Verse 57 of Acts chapter 7. Then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting. And they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's interesting here is the word rushed, when they rushed out to him, is from a Greek word, hormeo, which is actually the same word used to describe the swine that ran into the sea when Jesus cast the demons into the herd of pigs, the, herd, the swine. In other words, it's saying when this mob was rushing toward Stephen, they were out of control. It was like a herd of swine. They were so furious, they just came at him and they stoned him. They were throwing stone after stone after stone. And he wasn't even accusing them or trying to defend him. He was simply saying, my God is not limited to a man-made structure. And he is above anything and everything. And he's more powerful. And the biggest, how do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. I believe many of us are weak in testimony because we're scared of, we're scared of the stoning. Because people know the good side and the bad side. And we're scared when we stand for him, they're going to stone us for the bad. Or stone us for the good. What if standing for him means you might lose friends at the name of Jesus or family? What if standing for him may, means you may lose favor? And the first man to die for the name of Jesus, Stephen, was at the hands of what would be what some consider the greatest apostle. Because the apostle Paul was not walking in his identity at this time. 
He was walking in an identity that the world gave him and that he put on himself as a man named Saul. Many of us are walking in false identities. And it's difficult for us to accept the idea that you do have a purpose. That you never thought yourself worthy of. But Jesus bought that for you. To make you worthy of everything that you know God's calling you to do. Because the accuser of the brethren, the, the accusations that may come from your co-workers and your friends, you're going to get the thoughts. You don't deserve to do that. You can't do that. You can't rise up. You can't be free. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. But we have to remember something. Jesus bought your new identity for you. Let's start walking in it. You want to know how you want to respond to the accusations of the lies that come through your head? Stand firm in the faith. Walk for Jesus. Talk like him, look like him. Become the mirror image of him in the earth. Build a relationship with him and nothing else. Because he says over and over in the scripture, he'll never let you down. You may go through a season of captivity. You may be in years of slavery to the job or to the, the friendship or the relationship or the whatever ship. But if we will just focus on him, he will lead us out. Verse 59 and 60. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, Stephen died. As he was dying, he prayed for the people who were accusing him. You know what that reminds me of? Jesus. Remember when he was on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Which shows you something about Stephen. Stephen didn't look like Stephen in this moment. His face was shining. He proclaimed that he saw Jesus. And he was responding like Jesus. He wasn't responding like Stephen. He wasn't trying to argue his way or lawyer up or anything like that. He was standing tall for what was right. He was fixed on God. And he was so fixed on God that he was taking on the image of God. And that is the goal. And I close with this scripture in 2 Corinthians 3.18. So all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. You're going to have accusations in your mind and your thought life from friends, family, maybe even fellow believers. But the goal is simply this. We want to reflect the glory of God. That when accusations come against us, they no longer see how Kyle would respond or how you would respond. They see the language and the response of Jesus loving the accuser, forg asking forgiveness for people who don't know what they're talking about. Because, see, this is no longer about let me be right and then be wrong. This is about letting our God be lifted up and glorified. 
So let's glorify him in everything we do. This is a, I believe this is a defining moment for the church in 2020. It's going to be a lot of accusations. So let's make sure our eyes are fixed in one place. And we respond to accusation like this. We love our God. He is the one true God. And we're going to walk and talk just like him. We're going to respond like him. And he's going to get glory by the way we respond to the accusations.